I'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, that they had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are, the farthest, are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Dear God, I just pray that as we start this new study in the book of Nehemiah, God, that you open our hearts and our minds, Lord, that you teach us and, and mold us and shape us and help us to hear exactly what it is that you're teaching us, Lord. Speak through Pastor Kyle this morning, God, and give him wisdom. Uh, give him to, the courage to say exactly what it is you, you would have him say this morning, God, and just speak through him. We love you so much. Thank you for all that you do. In your name, amen. amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you so much. <clears throat> So good to see everyone this morning, that the Lord is encouraging you, um, and that you're having a great Lord's Day with us. Um, I think um, this uh, mic might be a little bit loud for me. I put it kind of close to my face, so <laughs> um, it's so good to be here. We're starting a new series in the book of uh, Nehemiah, so just really excited about that. We finished Acts a couple of weeks ago, and now we're, we're jumping into a new book in the Old Testament. A uh, book called Nehemiah, and I just wanted to say too, it's been um, just a let's welcome uh, Jesse uh, as our new worship leader, and thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you so much, you did a great job. Uh, David's going to be here next week, and he's going to lead worship for us, and um, he's going to be with us for the next month, just kind of transitioning. But, but really great to have you, thank you, and um, so so great um, to be here this morning and to enter into a new chapter, a new year, basically. Uh, to consider wh uh, what the Word of God has to speak to our lives, to speak to our church, and just to speak to our situations. Amen? Um, I wanted to, to add to the scripture reading this morning just a few verses in chapter 2, because I think they're relevant. Let me read to you chapter 2 in Nehemiah, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, 
When wine was brought for him, remember Nehemiah is the cupbearer, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Let's pray. God, we come to your word expecting, Lord, a message of application for our lives in this moment. Millennia is separated from this story of Jerusalem um, to the present day. We know, Lord, that you're speaking to us still through your word. So, God, I pray, Lord, that you would transform us, that you would guide us and direct us through the powerful word that you provided for us. In Christ's name, amen. Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he said, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope now he's talking about the old testament scriptures in this instance sometimes we think we approach the old testament and think ah, i like the new testament god seems a little happier in the new testament well that's maybe not entirely true <laughs> but um for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures the old testament scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope everything that was written in the old testament scriptures serves the unique purpose of providing hope to us as the church millennia later hope to us hope to people who have placed Repentant faith in Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that we're really opening up the Old Testament and seeing what it has to say. I think we'd be a little bit lopsided if we only always taught through New Testament books because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. So we approach the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. How does this book, which is basically dealing with a massive rebuilding project, Provide us with hope. <laughs> the call of Nehemiah, basically, this is, we'll see this in chapter 2, but the call of Nehemiah, the call to the nation through Nehemiah, is to rise up and build. But as we'll see in the weeks to come, this building isn't just about walls. It's not just about a city. It's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's about his kingdom on earth reigning. Not only in the people of God, but in our hearts. The king has reign in our lives. See, that was what was lost in, in Israel and Jerusalem these millennia ago in Nehemiah's day. And this is what Nehemiah wanted back. Nehemiah, let me give you some of the setting. He's a cupbearer to the most powerful ruler in the world at the time, the Persian king Artaxerxes. So this means that Nehemiah is, needs to be sort of a attention to detail kind of guy, right? Because he needs to taste the food before the king eats it to make sure it's not poisoned. So he, he's, he's got attention to detail. He doesn't want to hear, long live the king, goodbye, Nehemiah, <laughs> right? So he, he's got this attention to detail. Now, he's the cupbearer to the Persian king. He's a Jewish man being a cupbearer to the per Jerusalem, had been destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. 
He attacked Judah. He sent into exile most of its inhabitants. And the Old Testament teaches us that the reason this happened was because the people of Israel had forgotten the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals. Okay? So Nebuchadnezzar, God uses Nebuchadnezzar to judge Israel for abandoning the Lord. So Nebuchadnezzar attacks Judah, sends into exile most of the inhabitants. Jerusalem is burned to the ground. The temple is destroyed. And nearly the three-mile wall that surrounded Jerusalem is reduced to a pile of rubble. All the precious items in the temple in Jerusalem had been stripped out and um, cattle herded down to, uh, down to Babylon. All the gold, all the silver, everything precious. And all that remained was wild animal and animals and weeds. And once, the city of David and Solomon. Now through a change in governmental leadership, Persia ends up conquering Babylon and we see this in some of the books of the Old Testament, some of the Jews under the Persian regime are allowed to return and subsequent rebuilding projects are occurring. We see this in the book of Ezra, okay? So, and, and at the end of the book of Second Chronicles. But the, the work is basically halted even upon this return just basically because of laziness, because of opposition, because of persecution. So not much basically is really done until Nehemiah comes. We look, at, we look back at this historical narrative thousands of years later apart and sort of wonder what possible hope we can get from it. What benefit or application can we find in this story? Now, I think a lot of times, I've read, I've read some books just kind of preparing for this, and just being a Christian for a long time, hearing sermons about the book of Nehemiah, oftentimes they're very loaded with, like, how to be a good leader, Right? gathering information, assessing the work, motivating depressed people, um, withstanding opposition, like all these things like good leadership skills. And certainly we can learn those things from this book. But I don't really think that's the main point of Nehemiah. And I think we're going to miss something very important to the vision that God has for his world, if that's all we really kind of think about when we think about this book and this story. There's a basic developmental promise in the Bible. If you want to understand the Bible, I'm glad you came to church this morning because here it is. You ready? Okay, there's a basic promise in the Bible. Man has fallen and God has promised in Genesis 3 to rescue man through the seed of woman. We ultimately know that seed is Jesus Christ the Messiah. Okay? But that develops in the Old Testament. That promise develops. Eventually we learn in Genesis 12 and other places that that promise is also going to be fulfilled through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 sons of Israel. And he promises that he's going to send them to a land that he will show them, establish a kingdom on earth, which would be the typical kingdom of the the real kingdom, the eternal kingdom, that God would eventually establish forever through the Messiah. Does this make sense so far? So Israel is representing the eternal kingly rule of the Messiah that is to come. There's a promise that this Messiah is going to come through the nation of Israel. Now that's that's the basic story of the Old Testament. God will rescue people into his eternal kingdom through the Messiah, which would come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jerusalem is in ruins. Jerusalem being in ruins would call into question in the minds of the people of Israel whether or not God had abandoned his promise. You see? That the Messiah would come and ultimately rescue man many different nations and many different people from all nations. You might wonder that in the wreckage, 
and um, d- devastating problems, even of, of your own life, has God abandoned his promise? When you think, when you consider the, the, the wreckage of your family or your, church, your churches or different, you know, just harrowing experiences that you've had in your life, is God there? Is he real? These walls are in ruin. I thought God loved me. No doubt Israel was thinking the same thing when, they, when many, many decades and decades have gone by and still Jerusalem lies in ruins. But Nehemiah did not forget the promise of God. That God is not slow to his promise. That he is faithful in spite of the broken walls. Amen? In spite of the broken walls, God has made a promise and he will make good on that promise. And that should give us much hope this morning. God will gather his people. Jeremiah chapter 25, Nehemiah knew very well, it said, the whole country Israel will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied this, but he didn't end there and Nehemiah knew it because in verse 12 of chapter 25 it says, but when those 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. He knew in Isaiah chapter, chapters 40 through 55 that God would bring Israel back. So Nehemiah was not discouraged because of the situation and, its, and how it looked perhaps a bit bleak. Comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly. This is Isaiah chapter 40. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. And then later on it says, prepare the way for the Lord. It's a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist. In other words, God had not forgotten his promise. In spite of the way things might have looked at the, at the time, Nehemiah was convinced that at no time, please hear this, at no time in redemption, we should be convinced of this too, at no time in the history of the people of God and God's, and God's working with us as a humanity, and no time, he was convinced that at no time in redemption history is it impossible to replicate the kingdom to come in this moment. It's never that bleak. You see, because we have the perfection of Christ to come in his eternal kingdom, the Bible promises that we can experience that awakening of life even in this moment, no matter how bad it seems. That's a promise in the Bible, and and Nehemiah knew it. No matter how bad the condition of the church is, that it can get life again through the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter how bad your family is, whatever the condition it's in, or maybe you yourself are far from the king and need to be revived again. It's possible because of the gospel. And here's why we approach Nehemiah, this marvelous little book in the Old Testament, because it models for us the cause and remedy of a lifeless church and a lifeless life. See? The cause and the remedy for a dying spiritual life in the individual and in the corporate people of God. This is the power to transition God's people from apathetic and disheartened and demotivated and lifeless, intimidated, discouraged. We have the power, the access to that power to be awakened and to be joyful, to be hopeful, to be motivated, to be bold. 
That's not a thing of the past, a thing of years prior, that day when God moved powerfully. Wasn't it wonderful? Because it's still, we still have access to it in this very moment. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He said, Abraham, look at the stars around you. So shall your descendants be. And that promise is transferred to every people of God in every decade, in every century, in every millennia. Because when we look at the stars in the sky, we should remember that the promise of God is that God will rescue. Rescue in profound and amazing ways. You say, my family, that guy, this culture? Absolutely. Of course. Nehemiah didn't forget that promise. And I fear that oftentimes we do. We just stop believing. So Nehemiah, because he didn't stop believing, he built. Not just walls, but he was preparing the way for the Lord, the kingdom, the kingdom to come, the kingdom in his heart to come forever when Christ Jesus returns. Preparing the way for him. And that's the call, that's the task for us, friends, as the church, to prepare the way for the coming king in our own hearts, in this local church, and to the ends of the earth. That's what, that's what our call is to prepare the way for him. To not let God's people, the church, or his message, the gospel, lie in ruins. It need not be. But to build. And here we go. We have a task at hand to build the king and his message and his people. Amen? That's the task. That's the call. Rise up and build. Build it in your heart. You've got to start there. Because if it's not there, then why do it anywhere else? It's just pretentious, isn't it? Build the king, the king in your heart, in your devotion and love for him first. And then pick up the hammer and the saw and come, come together and let's go after others. The joy found. And by the way, there's joy found all over the pages of Nehemiah. The, the people are weeping at one point, And Nehemiah says, stop doing that. Because they're repenting of their sins. They're seeing it as their fault. He says, stop weeping because today is victory. Today, the king is going to build this thing. And that's amazing. That he's forgiven us. That he's given us that opportunity in spite of the many ways in which we failed him and sinned against him. That we can repent, turn to him, have our sins forgiven and be used by him in this world. Rejoice. Remember Paul? Rejoice evermore. That's an amazing message of grace and love that we have access to. Now, you might have no interest in the story of the rebuilding of some dusty old rubble of an ancient city, but, but quote Gordon McConville, this is what he says, the real significance neither begins nor ends with bricks and mortar, but lies rather in the fact that God has acted and he will act again. God rebuilt that city those millennia ago, and he's building his church's kingdom This moment. Wow. So here's where we need to pause and we need to ask. What do we want? What do you want? Remember that question that the king asked Nehemiah. Nehemiah, what is it you want? (laughs) It's a loaded question, isn't it? The answer to that question is going to define the vision of our lives, the vision of our churches. What makes us weep? You see him weeping. What brings tears to your eyes? What is it you want? You know, like we know the evangelical church answer, but is that really our answer? 
You might respond with the right answer to me verbally, but is it really what drives us? We might know the, the book answer to that question, but you know, really after some heart searching, many of us probably don't have a kingdom vision. And I, say, and I say that sadly in my own life. I've seen that many times, vacillating from pursuing God's dreams to pursuing my own. My desires ranging from wanting marriage to jobs to you know, success and power and all these different things that you go after. And when I was a kid, I you know, wanted to be a Ninja Turtle. You know that one, right? Uh, our desires have ranged from, from all of these things. And unfortunately, I know I look, I look back on my life often and if someone were to ask me why does your face look so sad Remember the king asks Nehemiah this why does your face look so sad and very often it's not because the king the king's not reigning fully in my heart because the, the gospel um, isn't being exalted as fully as it could be in my church it's because you know, I don't know, some friend got mad at me or, <laughs> or doesn't want to talk to me anymore. Or the girl I liked, you know, broke up with me, you know, like all these things that, that oftentimes, and I don't mean to disparage hard moments or grief or loss because those are real. But how often does my faith, face look sad? It has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It has everything else to do with just my own egotism, my own idolatries, all the things that have left unrealized that make me look great to the world. <laughs> so we need to ask a question today. I need to examine it daily. What is it that makes me mourn and weep? What is it that I really want? Nehemiah is a figure that can help us turn and transform our just kind of insular and egocentric dreams to kingdom visions. And that's what I hope for my life, for you for this church, for churches around here. We're told in our text that he receives a visit, a visit from one of his brothers and friends who have returned from home, from Jerusalem. And he learns what's happening back home. And time and, and distance really hasn't eroded Nehemiah's uh, sense of deep concern for his nation Israel, for the kingdom of God. You see, because it's not just about a city. It's about God's city. It's about the kingdom coming through the Messiah, right? So the news isn't good. Nehemiah gets these news, this news from his friends, words like survival and trouble and disgrace and burned and broken describe the situation. And how often can we look at that and just describe our own situation like that? We can describe our own churches like that, our own families like that, our culture. As, as a result, Nehemiah is overwhelmed with, with sorrow. But when circumstances seem bleak, that's usually when God moves, isn't it? The world needs people who can understand and be driven by God's vision, to be awakened to it, to mourn and lament over the circumstances, but also to see the hope and the promises of God. So we don't just dissolve into a bucket of tears, but we realize that in spite, almost like Jesus crying over Lazarus, he was sad because of the condition of Lazarus, but he had the power to raise him to life. And that's the same, that's the perfect illustration for, for our world. We should weep and mourn, but not as those without hope. Because the gospel can transform it powerfully in your life. So let me ask again, what is it that makes us mourn? What is it we want? What is our life's vision? Nehemiah is a figure that I think can help us turn our dreams to kingdom dreams. And we see him doing 
three things when he gets this news, okay? We see him doing three things that we really should take note of, and this is in chapter 1. The first thing is Nehemiah has a God-placed concern. I questioned them, it says, about the Jewish remnant. He is concerned about the kingdom of Jerusalem because he's concerned about the kingdom of God. He's not asking them, how's my house? Did someone burn it down? <laughs> right? Like, Are my cattle, can you find them? Are they there still? He's not asking those questions. He's asking, how's the Jewish remnant? He's concerned with the kingdom of God. Oftentimes the needs around us drive our vision, but for us to have a kingdom vision, we have to know what it is that God intends to do in this world. And we also need to see the ways in which the world is not realizing that intention. You see, because those are prayers God will always say yes to, and we'll see this later. What God intends to do in this world, he intends to accomplish through his people the church, so God's vision has to be our vision if we're ever going to do God's work. Does that make sense? If we're insular, if we become egocentric as individuals and as churches. God's vision for his world isn't realized by our vision as people, and therefore will we'll not be God's tool to see his great vision realized. We'll just be another group of people that gathers and likes each other. Maybe. Maybe we like each other. If we're lucky. But we got to get on board. we got to see what God intends for this world and start asking God, transform my desires to be yours. So our visions become short-sighted. We end up busying ourselves with trivialities. In order to see what brokenness God intends to fix, we need to be interested and we need to observe. We need to be interested in what God wants and we need to look around us and see ways in which God's kingdom has not come in this earth, in our own lives. Is God reigning in my life? Is he king in my heart? Is King Jesus reigning there? Or are our walls destroyed, you see? Nehemiah could have, like I said, asked for a million different things, material things. But his question rather was rooted out of concern for the name and the fame of the God of Israel. That's what his concern was. So Nehemiah had a God-placed concern. And second, he had a God-placed response. Number two, when I heard these things, what did he do? I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of Israel. His response to hear this news of the condition of Israel, the people of God, was to weep. Our reaction to needs or problems tells a great deal about what we value, doesn't it? Nehemiah reacts this way because of what it is that he wanted. His vision. His vision for God's kingdom to reign in his people and in their hearts. And it wasn't happening. The glory of God was dragged in the dust in Judah, so he wept. And today, it seems to me that Oftentimes, churches are converted into condos and seminaries don't really even believe the gospel anymore. And oftentimes, even we are just far from God. Even his people who believe the gospel tend to get distracted and discouraged and overwhelmed and tired. 
When have we wept over the spiritual bankruptcy of our churches, of our culture, of us, of our, of, of our own lives? When, we ha when we have, have we really seen the real problem? You see what I mean? The walls are down. They crumble to the ground. We cry over so many things, as we should. Because sometimes loss in life is real loss. So I'm not trying to say we shouldn't, but oh, if we would just have a God-placed vision and a God-placed response to how this, our own lives and our own people aren't realizing that in their lives. Oh, if, if we're alive, just God grant us tears. Grant us tears. Pray that we understand the times that we live and the, the God who rules over those times. Notice uh, Nehemiah doesn't start planning. Uh, how many planners do we got in the room? You see a problem and you immediately say, oh, here's what we're going to do. Here's where I'm going to fix this thing. I'm, I'm kind of like that at times. You know, so like that, that instead, that, that Nehemiah doesn't do this. He just starts to weep. He doesn't start planning. He doesn't start thinking about personal gain. Oh, the city's in ruins, huh? Maybe you can get some good cheap land. Right? <laughs> Now's the time to buy. Let's get in there. He doesn't start thinking like that. He starts to weep. He wept, not for himself. He wept for God. The glory of God, the holiness of God, the exaltation of God. The people of God had forgotten him. And friends, the people of God are always the instrument to reveal God to this world. He desired God's will be done and his promises realized. So he wept. He had a God-placed concern and a God-placed re response. And third, he had a God-placed prayer. He didn't just weep. It's not hard to find people that just always just lament problems, right? They're everywhere. Complainers, oh, isn't this dreadful? Oh, can you believe who they just elected? Or can you believe they didn't elect? This, right, like, the, just always, like, the sky is falling, chicken little. It's not always hard to, to find this. What an awful climate we live in. No one, <laughs> it's, it's very easy to go there, to even lament problems. But how many times can we take those to the king? You see, and this is what Nehemiah does. He doesn't just dissolve into a bucket of tears and lament problems and start complaining. He prays and he fasts. You see, he doesn't even pick up the... He, he's done crying and he doesn't start working yet because there's other work that needs to be done. He starts to pray. He prays and he fasts. It's not enough to lament needs. <clears throat> and it wouldn't have been enough for him to just start working on the problem. He needed to pray. He needed to go after the God of Israel. Because he knew something very important, that if Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, it's going to, it was going to become because God would do it, period. Not his ingenuity, not his wisdom, not his leadership savvy. It would have fallen flat. He needed God to do it. If our world is going to be rebuilt, friends, with the gospel and injustices fought for, If our world is going to be healed, if our nation, if our churches is, are going to be healed, we need to cry out to God for this. We need to ask God for his help. Verse 11, O Lord, be attentive to those who delight in and fear your name and grant us success, he prays. Grant us success. 
It says in Isaiah chapter 30, in prayer, the Lord leads us to the left and to the right. If we are ever to build anything for God, we must pray. We have to pray. Recently, I think I, I, I was challenging myself I was, and, and just kind of encouraging the rest of you to be a, a church that prays daily. Not once a week for a few minutes on your way to work, but daily. Start your day in prayer. I'm not saying it's got to be two hours or, you know, like I'm not trying to present to you unrealistic expectations, but I don't think it's unrealistic that a believer in Jesus Christ can rise in the morning and say, thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. Help me this moment to worship you today. To start our day like that. You see, well, I've, I'm, I know, like, I've heard the, kind of like the argument, well, I have my most energy at night. I'm a night person. And that's cool, and if you really are more effective in prayer and, and study at night, then fine. But I don't think that means that, that we don't start our day like that. There's, all over Scripture, it talks about morning, st- starting your day like this. And I want to encourage us, friends, that if we're ever going to see transformation in our lives, like this radical, awesome awakening and life-giving joy daily in our Christian life, it's only going to become because we know Jesus and we're at his right hand. He prays a threefold prayer. The first thing he does is he adores the Lord. In spite of the circumstances, in spite of the wreckage, he adores the Lord. We see this in verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. He is speaking the truth. You see this? He is praising God for his character. He is great and awesome. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. And that is such an awesome way to pray. To remind yourself of who God is. Because we can get so buried in the circumstances and problems of our life that we forget that God is great and good. In spite of them. In spite of the wreckage, God is still great and awesome. Do you believe that? In spite of the wreckage, God is still great and awesome. He is still faithful to his covenant. Always, no matter what you've been through, he is always faithful to his covenant, to his promise. And we can adore God for this. We need to adore God in his prayer, in our prayers. The second thing he does is he confesses his sin. In verses 6 through 7, and he confesses also something else that I think is really cool. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's family have committed against you. Isn't it so easy when something's falling apart to say, well, you know whose fault this is? His. (laughs) If he had done X, Y, and Z and was holy and was right, then this, this wouldn't have happened. But you know what Nehemiah does? He says, wow, I'm part of this. I'm part of the sinful, corrupt system that worked against God instead of for him. And he starts lamenting Not only the sins of his nation and the sins of his family, but his own. Isn't that incredible? You know that you can never build anything for the Lord unless you are good and right with him. You cannot be living in unrepentant worldliness and sinful sinful decisions that you're making and think... I can't, and this is a big challenge to me. I can't think that I'm going to, we're going to do anything together that is going to be noteworthy in the kingdom of heaven unless our lives are pure. That doesn't mean we're not going to fall and make mistakes. But you see, it's happening with, he's fallen too. But you know what he's doing? He's having humility. He's saying, God, I've conf- I'm confessing this to you. 
I've been part of the problem. And he turns from it and he says, I'm going to start doing the right thing. And oh, friends, the call to repentance goes to all of us. The call to say, I love God more than I love the thing that I'm told I shouldn't be doing. You see? I love God more. So Nehemiah confesses his own sin. And often, as, right, we, we point our fingers at other people. We point our fingers. It's the evil world out there. It's, it's all those people that don't agree with me. That's the problem with the world. And, but we don't see our own participation and our own fallenness as creating a problem. Nehemiah doesn't do this. He sees the demise of his culture as his fault. Wow. Isn't that radically different? <laughs> that is so different. Then when we observe like, you know, problems in our culture, we just blame everyone else. It was the consequence of his own sin. Do we see the brokenness of our church, of our world, of our family as being, do we take responsibility in that? Do we confess our sins to God? But he's not just confessing sin. He confesses something else. He is confessing a promise. And this is where it gets really awesome. Verse 8, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people, who are at possibly at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your might. You see what he's doing? He is confessing the promise of God. He is not just confessing his sin. He's saying, God, I'm also confessing what you have said. You, you have said that you will do this, that you'll regather us, that you'll re rebuild the walls. So here's my heart of confession. And God, you have said when, I, when we do this, you will show up and you will work and you will rebuild. You know, oftentimes there's a narrative of ne negativity playing in our brain. How many people have that story going on in your brains throughout the day sometimes? It's this like story of negativity. This won't work. People won't listen. That guy is too hardened to, you know, anything that has to do with God. God won't supply our needs. This isn't going to work. Right? It's, the, it's the negative narrative. How many people have ever had a negative narrative in your mind? It's just completely negative. Can I tell you something right now? That that is a complete lie. The Bible promises that Jesus Christ will build his church. So I need to believe it and trust it, and it will happen. You see? In prayer, we need to practice confessing what is true, what God has promised, answering the lies that we make up with the truth that God has spoken, you see? But finally, he doesn't just confess, he asks. He says, God, supply. That's supplication. Give your servant success. Verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's talking about the king. He was absolutely specific in his request. He wasn't tied up in theological knots. He knew that God was going to do what he promised to do. Those are the prayers of a righteous man that availeth much. 
he knew God would say yes. And we should always pray in faith to that which God has promised. You know what that means? That means if you're struggling in your spiritual life, you feel far from God, that if you say, God, let your kingdom come in my heart, he's always going to say yes to that. He's never going to say no to that. And you can believe that he'll do it. So start praying it. Start, if you say, oh, I've been so far from God. Well, today's the day. Start praying it. Because if this God is real, and if he is always faithful to his covenant, he has promised you to show up. So start praying it, and he will. We should always pray in faith what God has promised. When you pray, rebuild my walls, God. He's going to start doing it. He's going to start doing it. He will do it. Isn't it interesting that he calls the most powerful man on earth this man? Give me, <laughs> right? So he's talking about the most powerful ruler on the earth. He's like, give me success with this man. <laughs> he doesn't call him King Artaxerxes. He doesn't call him His Majesty the Highness. He asked the Lord for success when making requests to this king, but he calls him this man. Because I think what he's doing right here is he's reminding himself that even the most powerful people on earth are but flesh. You see, when we start to want to serve Jesus and get his vision, you know what's going to start happening? Opposition. And sometimes from powerful people. So Nehemiah is reminding himself it doesn't matter who he is. It matters who God is. And that's what prayer, uh, prayers of faith do for you. When you pray to the God, of, the God of Scripture, to Yahweh, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to the creator of all things, everyone else is his servant. <clears throat> See? It's not, you know, mice and men. It's not kings and servants. It's God and us. Right? You, you recall those many passages of Scripture? You, 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 know, you remember when little teeny David, you could like put him in your pocket. He was so small. He climbs out and all these other strong soldiers are you know, afraid of Goliath and they're all running and hiding and he's going to kill us all. And you know, someone takes David out of his pocket and puts him, puts him on, you know, on a little teeny like anthill. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? The God of Israel can destroy him with a poof. So he goes out with his little sling and his stone, and Goliath says, what am I, a dog? That you come to me with sticks and stones? What's David doing? He knows it has nothing to do with his size or Goliath's. Because God made all things. When you trust God in prayer, three very important things happen. And I noted this from a work by Frederick Holmgren. I really appreciated it. He says, when you trust in God, three very important things happen. It prevents us from fearing the power of man. You see, that's why we need to go to God in prayer. That's why we need to adore him. That's why we need to confess our sin to him, because we need him. It, helps, it prevents us from fearing the power of man. It doesn't matter if he's talking to the king. The king is no greater than him. Who is the greatest? The God, the Yah, Yah, our Yahweh, our creator who moves the hearts of kings. So we have nothing to fear when we stand up for Jesus Christ, when his vision is our vision. There is no local town council. There is no state or king that can do anything to pervert or stop the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So it prevents us from fearing the power of man. And even if lions eat us, 
we will go to heaven in glory forever with our King Jesus. You see, and he will come back and he will have his way. It keeps alive hope, number two, in the unfortunate surprises of history. Right? When we pray in faith, it keeps alive hope in the unfortunate surprises of history. What do I mean by that? The seeming ways that God might not be faithful in your life. You know, someone dies or, or a church closes or things are happening, conflict is going on. You see, when we're reminded of Yahweh of the King, it keeps alive hope in the unfortunate surprises of history. And also, you know what it does? It makes weak people strong. It, it raises up people that are seemingly insignificant to do incredible things for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that does. Little teeny puny churches like Refuge could do incredible things. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that awesome? In a little teeny town, in a little teeny state, that's incredible. You know, and it's not because it's us either. It's not because we have some kind of secret brilliance or some awesome plan that no other church has. It's because of Yahweh. It's because if we present ourselves to him humbly and say, God, we need you. Can you please show up? We want to build your kingdom. He'll do it. Isn't that incredible? Wow. The promise of God will always be faithful. God's vision and purpose today is clear. You know what he says? I will build my church. And the, hate, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, isn't this an amazing passage? If, just let me remind you, of, remind you of it. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. Maybe a person that you think would never come to faith in Jesus Christ is in that multitude. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language. Is, the, is, is God real or not? Is this his word or not? Is he true or not? Is he a liar or not? Because if he's true, every language, every people, every tribe, every nation is going to be standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That doesn't mean every single person in all those tribes, but people from those tribes, from those nations, from those languages will be standing before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. You see, this is the, this, these are the residents of heaven. Friends, when we look at the broken walls around us and say, God, we have sinned, would you grant us success? We start seeing the nations and the tribes come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to do. That's the call to the church today and to every church for all time. The promise of God is that every tribe and every nation and every people and every language is around the throne so the most lost culture has hope. The most lost uncle, the most lost friend, even in your own situation, if you've drifted far from God, at any moment you can cry out to him and come back to him. And he'll build you again. He'll build those walls. So we need to see what he sees. We need to weep for how our, how our world is falling short of what he is seeing. And we need to plead to God to build those walls again. Amen? What do you weep for? What do I weep for? Have we stopped grieving, praying, begging God? Have we give up, given up hope? Nehemiah's vision was God's promise realized and nothing less. See that? Nehemiah's vision 
was God's intention, his promise realized, and nothing less. Let, let us have the vision that God has promised. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray, Lord, that if we have a broken heart, that we would take heart. Lord, our ambitions of life aren't necessarily wrong if they're not spiritual ambitions. But God, I pray, Lord, that you would heighten the level of your vision in our lives. That we would grieve what you grieve over. That we would weep over what you weep over. Help us not to let good things become ultimate things. I pray, Lord, that we would not want my will and not thy will. Help us to want thy will and not my will. Help us to want what you want, Lord. What a question. What do you want? I pray that we would want Jesus. That we would want our King. And that we would want his kingdom on this earth. I pray, Lord God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to want the most lovely figure that has ever walked the face of this earth, Jesus Christ. I pray that they would delight in him. To stop pining for good things that you made, but to begin pining for the maker. If you don't know Jesus Christ, would you just confess your sin to him? Declare him your Lord and King and Savior. Accept the work on the cross as the complete and finished work for your sin. That you don't need to do anything else. That you are saved by grace through faith because Jesus took it all. He paid it all for you. God, we thank you so much, Lord that you have made us your friends upon repentant faith in Jesus Christ. And we love you so much, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're transitioning now to the Lord's Supper. We participate this in this every week. And I just ask, if, if you don't know really where you're at spiritually, if you're not a Christian, you don't really know what that means, we just ask you not to, um, not to exclude you from this supper, but there's so, something so much more important for you. Ask God where you stand with him. Seek him right now in silent prayer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a supper uniquely for you because it should have been our blood shed. It should have been our body broken, but instead it was the body and blood of Jesus Christ that was done for those things, broken and, and spilled for us. So when you take these elements, just remember, just remember that that blood should have been yours. That body should have been yours, but Christ took it. Amen? And he loves you, and he's coming back for you. And if, you don't, if you're new here and you don't really know the way that we do communion here, it, um, the music's going to start. You can pray in your seat. Just like make, um, you know, just start going after Jesus in prayer. Make your heart ready for the taking of the elements. And then at your own pace, just come on up front. We're going to have people up here holding them. Um, if you have an allergy, it's a gluten-free cracker, so hopefully you can still participate. Would you just join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper? God, we take our sin to you knowing that you are faithful and just to every single time forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
God, we see a vision of the past, of the conquering king coming and conquering death as our substitute on the cross. We see a vision of the future where King Jesus returns, where there is no more injustice or prejudice or fear or death. And God, we see a vision of now where the kingdom of heaven can advance in our hearts and in our world. So God, we thank you for the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would live faithfully as your followers. Your word says in Matthew chapter 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thank you, God, that we will participate in this supper with you in your kingdom when you come. So, God, we love you, and we thank you for all that you're doing for us in Christ's name. Amen.
be our prayer this morning um, as we look to God that we seek to know more of him um, and just live radically different lives in this world where it's so all the problems all the things going on sometimes make it tough to look at things in the natural but God's called us to more he's called us to be lights lights that shine in this dark dark world but as it gets darker and as it gets harder, we can shine even more brilliantly.
just want to thank you and praise you, Lord, in advance for all of the victory that we have in you, all of the victory that you're going to bring us, Lord, 